You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode has mention of uncomfortable topics such as sexual assault, rape, and violence. Some parts may be graphic and difficult to take in. I would do my best to convey the details of this case with as much care as possible. I advise that you all take care while listening. Please put the podcast down and walk away from it if you need to. Please consider this a trigger warning before listening to the details of these events. I'll be right back. See you later. I'll catch up with you tomorrow. These are phrases that we often throw around lightly, jokingly, without even thinking about them. But we take them for granted. When you wake up in the morning, it's impossible to predict exactly where the day will take you. Sure, you probably have some sort of routine, and most days go exactly how you planned, more or less. You might take that for granted, too. But what if you left your home one day and found yourself at the center of a criminal investigation? A criminal investigation that you had nothing to do with. For a gruesome crime you did not commit. And even worse, what if you were only in high school? Or what if you were the victim of that very same crime? Left outside, beaten, bruised, assaulted, violated, clinging to dear life. This is the story of how the Central Park jogger case in New York City altered the lives of a group of unsuspecting boys. This episode is the first in a three-part series that details the beginning of their path from accusation to exoneration in a more than a decade-long struggle. I'm Andre, and this is the Redacted History Podcast. So let's set the scene. New York City, spring of 1989. This is a very different New York than the one we see today. It was a time in the city's history unlike any other. That February, Princess Diana graced the state with her presence. People from all over the world continued to pour into the city, seeking new opportunities. Everyone wanted a piece of the... American dream. The people on the Upper East Side shopped and ate well. They strolled through their part of the city enjoying generational wealth in their new suits and perfectly brushed hair. They wore expensive colognes and perfumes, had drivers to take them around everywhere. Those on Wall Street had managed nearly a full recovery from the stock market crash of 1987, what we know as Black Monday. The crash came as a shock to many and changed the stock exchange permanently. Hip-hop music. That was born in the Bronx, a borough of New York City, and was growing in popularity and could be heard in the streets and on the subway constantly. It's easy to glamorize the late 80s and early 90s in a place like New York. But there was another side to the city. For many, several battles were being fought. Their struggles and fears went unaddressed. For those without an endless supply of daddy's money and access, the city had become an inescapable hellscape. Many people feared this side of the city. Others thought so little of the people who were just surviving that they were given no thought at all. And for those who did want to help, resources were so scarce that it was impossible to make a real impact. And by 1998, it had claimed the lives of hundreds of thousands of people. The stigma and misinformation surrounding HIV was so pervasive. 
many treatments were expensive or still experimental. The virus disproportionately impacted the LGBTQ community, particularly those who were people of color and already struggling to get by at that time. Because of this, many people didn't see the crisis as their problem. Prejudice allowed too many people to die because they were considered undesirable to begin with, even though, as we know, infections aren't exclusive to one community. In 1989, treatments were gradually becoming more accessible. Dr. Fauci, yes, that Dr. Fauci, was working to expand who could have access to clinical trials for experimental treatments, but progress was slow. But still, by this point, hundreds of thousands of lives have been touched by the virus, many lives gone much too soon. And if it wasn't HIV or AIDS, it was crack cocaine. The stressors of everyday life combined with the lack of money was the perfect recipe for an economy fueled by this new drug. Plus, no one knew exactly how addictive crack was. There are countless stories of people who tried this drug one time from someone they trusted, and that was it. No turning back. And when work was scarce, selling drugs seemed like the fastest way to make a lot of money and help support your household. The sentiment was that people who are now addicted would buy it from somewhere, so why not get your piece of the pie? Things spiraled completely out of control. Cocaine was nothing new and was considered more of a luxury drug. Crack was the cheaper, more addictive variant. Overnight, teachers, friends, neighbors, mothers, and fathers were lost to the substance chasing that next high. And for those profiting off of the detriment of their community, business was booming. Teenagers were making more money than their parents would see in a year or even a lifetime. Dealers became increasingly more territorial. Crime skyrocketed. Shootouts, stray bullets killed children who played in the streets instead of their intended targets. Anything of any remote value was at risk of being stolen by someone in need of money to buy more drugs. Police were either overwhelmed or corrupted. It was nothing short of a war zone. Neighborhoods that formerly had a sense of community were now unbelievably unsafe. This was when New York City had one of its highest violent crime rates of all time. Buildings were abandoned. It wasn't unusual to walk around with some sort of weapon because you never knew when you might be next. Anything could happen to you on the subway. In some parts, it looked like someone had dropped a bomb on the area. People were being murdered, raped, and beat up nearly every single day. Violence was a part of everyday life. And with no money to move, families like the ones of Antron McCray, Kevin Richardson, Corey Wise, Raymond Santana, and Yusuf Salam were stuck in the middle of it. Born and raised in Harlem, Antron McCray grew up with his mother and stepfather as an only child. But Step wasn't how he thought of Mr. McCray. Antron had his last name and in every way thought of him as his father, regardless of biology. Antron loved both of his parents and especially looked up to his father. As a child, he played Little League and his dad was the coach. I imagine them practicing together in the neighborhood, watching games together in their free time, developing strategy and taking things from players that he could add to his own game. Antron loved baseball and as a child had dreams of maybe even going on to play professionally. He played shortstop in several other positions, which, if you've ever played baseball, you know is arguably one of the most difficult positions to play. Many people considered Antron to be shy compared to some of his peers. He knew he had a few friends in the neighborhood, but he didn't know some of the other boys in his neighborhood would later be associated with him very well. 
he would see them around from time to time. Antron described his father as his best friend. There was a stark contrast between Antron McRae and Yusuf Salam. Yusuf was incredibly social and very tall. He played with lots of kids in the neighborhood and seldom met a stranger. His mother was a teacher and had an eye for fashion, and she was a single mother of three. Yusuf was raised in a household of discipline and love. His mama didn't mess around, needless to say. She was determined to raise her children to have a good head on their shoulders. This was no easy task, considering the current climate and that she was doing all of this on her own. Yusuf was very artistically inclined and enjoyed drawing and finding creative ways to express himself, such as jewelry making. Perhaps his love for art came from his mother. He even attended the LaGuardia High School of Music and Art. Unfortunately, he was kicked out of the school for having a knife in his locker. But like I mentioned before, it wasn't unusual for kids to keep some sort of protection on them during these times. From what I could gather, this was the only trouble he had been having. Afterwards, his mother enrolled him in a private Christian school and set him up with a big brother. If you're unfamiliar with the Big Brother, Big Sister program, they match up children with mentors to help them grow and succeed. Kevin Richardson lived in the same building as Yusuf and Corey Wise. Kevin grew up in a large family full of women. He may not have been in the Big Brother, Big Sister program, but he had plenty of big sisters. He was the only and youngest boy in the family with four older sisters. He was everybody's baby. They all kept a close eye on their baby brother, Kevin, who loved to hang out and play basketball with his friends. In fact, on the night of the incident that we'll get into shortly, that's exactly what he was doing. Raymond Santana moved to Harlem with his multiracial Puerto Rican family and quickly made friends. In his free time, he also enjoyed drawing. He had been doing so since a young age. Raymond also loved music, and you can't have New York, especially in the 80s, without hip-hop. Raymond was considered one of the cool kids, and like Yusuf and Kevin, he had plenty of friends. Corey, who was also Afro-Latino, did not have the same stability as some of the boys we just described. He had a rocky home life and even spent some time in foster care. Corey struggled with a hearing impairment. Ever since he was a child, the exact causes are undetermined, but it is suspected that it was due to some physical abuse. This impacted his ability to perform in school. I mean, it's challenging to make good grades when you don't have the proper accommodations. But this didn't stop him from navigating the world around him, making friends, and being charismatic. April 19th, 1989. Raymond Santana was 14. Kevin Richardson was 14. Antron McRae was 15, Yusuf Salam was 15, and Corey Wise was 16. All five boys were all in different places when they received the same offer to go hang out in the park. Kevin was playing basketball with a friend. They had been out there shooting around and having fun. Kevin loved basketball, so he played out there often. He saw a large group of kids headed to the park, Central Park, and recognized a few faces. He thought about joining them. A friend of his suggested that he not go, but Kevin decided to go just to see what was up. I mean, he's a kid and you see a bunch of people you're familiar with headed to the park, so you go to the park. Corey was at a local fried chicken place with Lisa on what I can only assume was a date. They were leaving when Yusuf approached him, letting him know that a group of guys were all headed to hang out in the park. He asked Corey if he wanted to join him and meet up with them. They were going to hang out in the park together. Corey said, yeah, that was fine. 
Easter was coming up, so school was out. Everyone could stay out a little later than usual. Raymond's father suggested that he go hang out in the park too, rather than hanging out in the streets or somewhere else that may get him in trouble. So he met up with some friends and headed that way. Antron also spotted a large group of people headed to the park. After recognizing a few faces, he decided he would join them too. He had a curfew that night, so he knew not to be out too late. And that's what teenagers do. You hang out at night with your friends. An empty parking lot, a fast food restaurant, the park. All perfectly reasonable options for a group of high schoolers, especially during a long weekend. It was getting dark at the park, and by 8.30 p.m., the sun had completely set. Central Park itself was hardly as healthy and lush as it is today. There were areas with trees, overgrown grass, some of the water was murky and unsanitary, graffiti and trash littered every surface, drug use and crime was rampant. Just two days prior, a man was caught raping a woman in the park. It was notoriously unsafe. Anything could happen to you in Central Park. This begs the question, why would a group of kids want to hang out in a place like this? Why would anyone? Well, for starters, these were young high school boys. How many random situations did you find yourself in at 16? Plus, the idea of more people meant safety in numbers. The alternative would be hanging out on the corner somewhere, which isn't much safer. And not to mention the group of over 30 boys were not alone in Central Park that night. So although it wasn't the safest, it wasn't unusual for people to still be in the park. People hovered in the area whenever possible. Couples rode their bikes, and it wasn't unusual to encounter joggers in the evenings. There were also addicts and a heavy unhoused population, but they were not inherently dangerous. The areas surrounding the park also remained busy as ever in the restless city. Like with most things, folks just learn how to live with their current conditions. And for some, that came with a sense of a mixture of denial, and if we're being honest, entitlement. It's a simple case of people thinking of themselves as exempt. Sure, there were reports of how dangerous the park could be, but no one thought that danger would apply to them. It's also someone else you read about in those stories on the news. And why should they be denied access to their local park? Because something might happen. Among these joggers that night in Central Park was Trisha Miley. In an interview years later with Oprah, it was mentioned, why was she in the park alone at that hour? Her response was, for me, running was a release at the end of the day. And I had this feeling that, hey, I have every right to run where I want, when I want. I'd been running in the park for two years. It was not a smart thing to do. And yet that is absolutely no justification for what happened to me. Oprah replied, believe me, I'm not sitting here trying to justify it. But the idea of running alone in Central Park is a foreign concept to me. You had to be the kind of person who either thought you were invincible or who was just nuts. To which Trisha replied, I wouldn't say I was nuts, but maybe I thought I was invincible. Patricia Miley, known by most as just Trisha, was a young white investment banker. After a long day at the office, she was looking forward to her daily jog through Central Park. A co-worker of hers was going to come by around 10 p.m. when she finished up her jog to check out her new stereo. Trisha wore black joggers and a white long-sleeve t-shirt for a run. The low that night was in the upper 40s. She had managed to stuff her keys in a handy little pouch that was attached to her sneaker. She also had her Walkman with her so that she could listen to some music while she ran. 
Trisha left her apartment around 9 o'clock p.m. after a brief conversation with the neighbor. She was hoping to finish up a run and be back in time to meet her coworker. She already had to cancel dinner plans with a friend earlier that day because work was running long. Trisha presumably entered the park at the southeast corner. The large group of boys that we discussed earlier entered at the northeast corner. They were at opposite ends and the boys had already been in the park for a little while before she arrived. It's estimated that her attack occurred around 9.15 p.m. During her run, Trisha suddenly found herself knocked to the ground. She didn't hear her attacker coming, and she didn't see the person who came up behind her. She put up her best fight, but she had been hit pretty hard and was dragged off the path deeper into the nearby wooded area. Her attacker used her garments to tie her mouth and hands. She was raped and beaten. Her body was left to bleed out on the muddy ground. During this attack, on the other side of the park, the large group of boys were becoming increasingly more rowdy. What started out as just horseplay turned violent. People were throwing rocks at the cars and soon started harassing bikers and other people in the park. At around 9.10 p.m., a man was beaten by some of the boys in the group. He was carrying some food and alcohol. After a group of boys jumped him, they took his food, and one of them even smashed the man over his head with a beer bottle, and he was bleeding from his head and stumbled out of the park to alert the police. At around 9.10 p.m., a couple on bikes entered the group. Some members of the group tried to knock the bikers off their bike, and they managed to get away. The bikers, a man and a woman who nearly escaped the group, would later report the harassment to the police as well. None of the five boys we mentioned were directly involved in any of this. They were merely onlookers and in some cases decided to leave once they saw that things were escalating. Corey left the park when a police car showed up and flashed their lights, and Antron left the park because he had a curfew and things were clearly getting out of control. Everyone scattered and some started looking for ways out of the park and away from the police. When news of the previously mentioned attacks reached the police, they began searching the park for this group of boys. This led them deeper into the park near the tennis courts, but this was no longer on the same path as Trisha was. In fact, it is unlikely they were on the same path at the time, considering the timing of the events. For the next 30 to 45 minutes, the violence continued with the remaining boys. One man, Joseph Laughlin, was jumped and beaten with a metal pipe. The other kids in the park continued to throw rocks and harass other people. Police caught up with the group again. Yusuf made it home that night with a smaller group that had broken off from the larger one. Raymond remained in the park searching for the friends that he came with. Kevin had just made it outside of the park, and Raymond's group was not far behind. The police finally caught up with this specific group. Once again, the group scattered, but the police caught Raymond and two other boys, Clarence Thomas and Lamont McCall. They were all handcuffed and put in the police car. When Kevin was stopped by the police, he panicked and ran out of fear. He remembers a police officer shouting behind him, Stop or I'll shoot. This is interesting because there was no indication that Kevin was a threat or armed. He was, after all, running away. This only motivated Kevin to run faster, run for his life. When the police officer caught up with him, he tackled him to the ground and hit him in the face with his helmet. Kevin recalls the officer looking at him and saying, I told you not to run, you little animal. Kevin cried out that he didn't do anything. He was only 14 and he'd never been in any trouble like this before. All of the teenagers that the police caught that night were taken down to the Central Park Precinct. 
Now, keep in mind, these boys were not detained because of the attack on Trisha. No one had even found her body yet or knew anything that happened to her at all. The only person who was a little concerned was her coworker, who stopped by on schedule at 10 p.m. to find that Trisha wasn't home. It was getting late and no parents were present just yet. Many of these boys had never been in this kind of trouble and were scared, tired, and anxious to get out of there. After a while, parents were called to pick up the children. Seeing their parents walk through the door gave them a sense of relief. For them, this meant they were one step closer to just going home. At around 1.30 a.m., two men finally stumbled upon Trisha's body. They heard noises coming from the woods. It sounded like someone was hurt. When Trisha was found, she was almost totally naked. Her bra had been lifted but not removed and her breasts were exposed. She had been beaten badly and blood was everywhere. Her mouth was gagged and her hands tied. The men immediately ran and got the police. When officers arrived, they were stunned at the injuries this woman had sustained. She was non-responsive. When the ambulance arrived, death seemed certain for Trisha. She was suffering from hypothermia and at the hospital, it was determined she had lost 75% of the blood in her body. She sustained a severe brain injury and several fractures, including one to her eye socket. No one knew the name of Trisha at this time, so she was just Jane Doe. She had no ID on her, and there was no way for her to communicate who she was. Her face was also beaten so badly that even if they had a name, friends and family wouldn't have been able to recognize her. She could only lay there now in a coma, hoping to stay alive. It was now getting close to 3 a.m., after being told that they were just waiting on paperwork, it was looking like the boys would be going home shortly. That is, until a call came in from Detective Jose Rosario, and he was calling about the jogger. This new development prompted the police department to hold off on releasing anyone in their custody. With what felt like having one foot out the door, Raymond and Kevin were in for a much longer night. The parents weren't exactly sure what was going on. The police were slow to release details about why they hadn't released anyone yet. Like we mentioned before, they thought they were just waiting on more paperwork. Late night turned into early morning. Entertainment turned into interrogation. The police started asking the kids what they knew about that lady in the park. Everyone was confused. What lady? What are y'all talking about? The group knew about the men who had been beaten up in the park and the bikers, but they didn't know anything about a lady. They didn't know anything about a jogger and the boys were very persistent about this fact. But the police became increasingly more agitated. They wanted answers. To them, either they had the perpetrator in custody or they had someone who had information. It never occurred to them that maybe they had neither. They used all of the techniques you see on TV and in real life. The typical good cop, bad cop, they used intimidation, both Kevin and Raven recall having police scream in their face so close that droplets of spit would spray on them. They remember them dangling the carrot of being able to go home if they just cooperated. There were even periods during the interrogation when their parents were not present. And at this point, the kids had not slept all night. They were scared, hungry, tired, and they just wanted to go home. Meanwhile, the police began to look for more people who were at the park that night. This led them to visit Antron McRae. They took him down to the precinct and asked him the same thing about the woman in the park who was just raped. Just like the other kids, he didn't know anything about a woman in the park. He swore he was telling the truth. They excused his mother from the interrogation and pressured his father to get Antron to confess. 
The whole thing was incredibly frustrating. So much so that at one point, Antron's father threw a chair across the room. Antron would give in to the pressure and sign a statement that incriminated him into the rape of the woman, as well as Kevin and two other boys. By this time, Raymond Santana and Kevin Richardson had signed statements as well, but they were all slightly different. All of the statements got what the woman was wearing and the location of the attack incorrect. Keep in mind, like we have discussed in prior episodes, American police have a long history of bullying and intimidating suspects into confessing to crimes that they did not commit. Raymond said it was Kevin and Steve and that he only grabbed her breasts in his second statement. His first statement, he didn't even mention the rape. Kevin said he was actually trying to stop it and that Antron and Raymond were the main ones involved. Antron's version of the events included two other boys, a tall black kid and Clarence Thomas, and Kevin and Raymond's version of the story included Steve Lopez, but not the other two boys. But more conflicting statements were on the way. That evening, the police found Yusuf. He was on a long list of names that they had compiled with persons of interest. Corey's name was not on that list. Corey had told Yusuf that he had heard that they were looking for people who were at the park that night. Corey went down to the precinct with Yusuf as a friend just to show his support. But the police ended up taking both Yusuf and Corey in without contacting their parents. They thought at the time that Yusuf was 16 due to some misinformation. He was in fact 15 and Corey was 16. Somehow, even though he was never a person of interest, Corey Wise ended up in the interrogation room alone. He ended up signing a written statement and admitted to seeing some of the attacks, but that he had left. He had only heard about the events that took place later in the evening. But this statement wasn't good enough. After speaking with detectives further, Corey's story changed and he mentioned that he had observed the rape but did not participate. Yusuf never gave a statement. The interrogation had started, and they had told Yusuf that they had his fingerprints at the scene of the crime. This, of course, wasn't true. It was just another tactic to get a confession. In case you didn't know, the police are allowed to lie to you if they feel it necessary. And in these situations, any lawyer would tell you your best bet is to remain silent. Yusuf's mother knew this, and when she showed up in a fury with his mentor and other family members, she was irate. She explained that he was in fact not 16 and could not be interrogated without her present. Furthermore, she demanded that her son come home with her. These interrogations lasted between 14 and 30 hours, depending on the individual. These young men did not know that police were allowed to lie. They buckled under the authority of law enforcement. They didn't know that they were incriminating themselves. They believed that if they cooperated, they would go home like the police said. They thought they wouldn't be in trouble. Some of the boys weren't even all that familiar with each other, but still, their statements pointed fingers at each other by name. The police told them things like, and Antron is saying that you did it, or Raymond is saying that you were there. Their thought process was, well, if this guy is saying that I did it, then yeah, I'm going to say that he did it because I'm not going to jail for something I didn't do. So they all wrote statements involving a gang rape in which different people took different parts. At this point, you might be wondering why the parents did not intervene if they believed their sons were innocent. Well, 
A lot of the parents who were present were not well-versed on how the system worked. In the case of Raymond, his grandmother who filled in for his father refused to sign the statement because she was still learning English and didn't understand what was really going on. Kevin's mother was recovering from a stroke and his older sister filled in on her behalf when she became too exhausted to continue. These were also all law-abiding citizens, so they trusted and listened to the police officers. They thought, just like their sons, that by complying, they would be able to go home. But the fine print was complying, and that meant confessing. After the written statements came the taped video confessions. They were led by none other than Assistant District Attorney Elizabeth Ledger. Corey Wise's interview started with him asking for a soda that he opened up but barely touched. He was read his Miranda rights and interviewed. You know, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in court of law. You have the right to an attorney. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. But Miranda rights, believe it or not, at that time, were still fairly new. The Miranda case decision happened about 23 years prior. And sure, it's considered a landmark case, but think about how many landmark cases the average person doesn't know about or fully understand the implications of. For example, Roper v. Simmons in 2005 ruled that it is cruel and unusual punishment to execute persons for crimes they committed before age 18. Did you know that? And I wonder how many high school kids know about that case. And because Corey was 16, it wasn't required for him to have an adult present. During the interview, you can tell that he is so visibly nervous and anxious. His legs are restless during the entire thing. You can hear the fright and confusion in his voice. There are even periods of time he is struggling to understand the interviewer and she is struggling to understand him. He says that during this time, his mind felt like scrambled eggs. At first, he confessed to only having watched the crime from afar behind a tree. He did not intervene, although he knew what was happening was wrong. And in his confession, certain details didn't exactly line up. He explained that he saw the woman's shirt being ripped from her body but didn't know what color the shirt was because it was too dark, but it was light enough for him to see that she was bleeding. He said that there was a struggle between her and the boys before they threw her to the ground. He heard screaming and that was initially what drew him to the site. He made no mention of her being tied up or gagged. He said that a hand over her mouth was used to keep quiet. Ledger asked him if he had seen her get hit. Corey said yes. She then shows Corey pictures and asks if he knew how the woman sustained those injuries. She said that the woman was hit with a heavy object, according to the doctors. She asked Corey if he saw anyone with a brick or a stone. In this video, he shakes his head no. She asked Corey if he would be willing to submit his DNA. He said with certainty that that would be fine. He was confident that his DNA would not be found at the scene. He maintained that he never touched the body he was confident that some of the other boys' DNA would turn up. Ledger asked Corey if he wanted to change anything about his story. It almost looks like he wipes a tear from his eye in the interview, and he says no. He had an incredibly long day. Earlier that morning, detectives had taken him down to the crime scene with Kevin, and what he saw was absolutely horrifying. He and Kevin both identified as that being the scene where it happened which was apparent by the amount of blood that was present. The cops didn't need these boys to tell them that. 
But this was another contradiction. The location they were brought to didn't line up to where they said the attack occurred in their statements. Corey was done with his interview. But after an hour later, after speaking with one of the detectives, he decided he wanted to add more to his story. He wanted to tell the truth this time. He went back on camera, this time explaining that he did see Kevin hit the woman with a rock. In this version of the story, he also said that she was slashed with a knife repeatedly on her legs. Lastly, and most importantly, he said that he did touch her leg, but that he didn't rape her. This detail is an important change, because rather than being a bystander, Corey was now admitting to being an active participant, whether he knew it or not. He also said that Yusuf was involved as well, in addition to Kevin, Steve, and Raymond. Raymond Santana was also visibly nervous during his interview. His chair swayed and he kept his arms folded during the majority of his interview. His father did accompany him, but does not chime in during the interview process. In Raymond's version of the events, he also saw what was going on from afar at first and later joined in. He also insisted in his statement that he did not rape the woman either. There were also a few other differences. Corey's story mentioned the use of a pocket knife and watching the woman be slashed with that knife. Raymond's story does not include this detail. Raymond also mentioned that he didn't know what the woman was wearing. He said he saw her and Kevin struggling and that Stephen and Antron tried to take her clothes off. He said that Stephen was the one who held her down and was holding her hands and that he was the one who hit her with a brick twice. He didn't mention seeing blood at the scene like Corey did. His story doesn't mention Yusuf or Corey at all. Raymond said that he didn't think that anyone tied her up or moved her body. He also stated that he did not rape anyone, that he only grabbed the woman's breasts. And he also made it clear that Kevin was the only one who penetrated her. Kevin, in his video, did not confess to that whatsoever. He said that Antron caught and pushed her down and then took her pants off, and that Steve and Raymond had her arms and legs. Kevin said he tried to stop the rape and grabbed her arm, but she scratched him. This conflicts with his initial statement that the police officer hit him with his helmet when Kevin was being chased through the park. And he also maintained that it was the other boys, not himself, who raped her. Like Raymond, his story did not mention Corey or Yusuf. Antron said that she had on blue shorts and a white shirt, which was not what she wore at all. He said that everyone kicked her and that a tall black kid with a pipe hit her. This kid was assumed to be Yusuf. His story does not mention Corey, and it isn't clear if he's describing Steve or Raymond, and it adds in another participant whom none of the other boys mention. He explained that everyone took off her clothes and that he was the one holding her arms and that everyone raped her, but that he only pretended to do so, that the other boys would not judge him. Yusuf did not give a video statement. Detectives had their own information about what happened based on the scene of the crime. She was first attacked on the road. There was blood there and a long path, presumably where she was dragged about 70 feet away from the road. The path was 16 to 18 inches wide. There were no footprints on the path that would indicate a group of boys walking along it. She was tied up with her own clothes. Her shoes and socks were thrown around and her Walkman was missing. We could not find anything indicating this item was found in the boy's possession by police. There was no way to get a statement from Trisha. She was still unconscious. When she would wake up almost two weeks later, she would have no memory of the attack. The last thing she remembered was canceling dinner with her co-worker earlier that day. The police also had no DNA evidence connecting any of the boys to Trisha. 
The semen sample found at the scene didn't match anybody's. And even though Kevin said he was scratched in the face, there was no evidence of his DNA at the scene. Any semen found on their clothes did belong to them, but there is no way of knowing when or how they got there. But the semen samples found from the rape kit and on Trisha's clothes belonged to someone else and her boyfriend. She would later explain that she and her boyfriend had sex the week prior and she wore those pants after, which is why his sample was there. Even with all of this conflicting information, the idea of them confessing was enough. It was enough for the police, and it was especially enough for people who wanted to see someone pay for this crime. And who better than these colored boys who literally confessed, even if they were under pressure and duress? And what's crazy about this is even today, most convictions for a crime come from plea deals, something like 98%, meaning that even if somebody didn't do it, they'll say they did it. Why? Well, in most cases, they feel like there's no point in going to trial. The odds are stacked against them. So rather than going to court, losing, and serving more time, they take the lesser sentence for a crime they maybe didn't even do. This is what happened to Steve Lopez. He was charged with rape and robbery. He pled guilty just before his case went to trial for the robbery in exchange for four years of his life in prison. He was 17 years old. The lesser of two evils. But that's getting ahead of myself a little bit. With the recorded confessions, Yusuf... Kevin, Raymond, and Antron, who were all under the age of 16, were sent to Spofford Juvenile Detention Center to await trial. And Corey, who was 16 years old, was sent to the infamous Rikers Island. That seems like a good stopping point for this week. Like I said, this is the first episode in a three-part series. And next episode, we'll dive into life for the boys as they await trial the media frenzy, and wildling propaganda that spread as a result of this case. We will learn a little bit more about Trisha's recovery, the trial, and the verdict. Until next time. This episode of the Redacted History Podcast was researched and written by Jordan Howard. It was narrated and edited by Andre White. If you like the Redacted History Podcast, consider subscribing to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening to, leaving a rating and review. It goes a long way. If you want to support the podcast in a different way, consider going over to the Patreon. You can find the Patreon linked in the description below.